open up your Bibles, if you will, to the book of 2 Chronicles. This is an Old Testament history book. 2 Chronicles, we see the, the story of the dedication of the temple. We see the story of the building of the temple, not only in the book of Kings, but in 2 Chronicles, we have a summary there. And I don't know about you, but buildings have been on my mind a good bit lately. Uh, we are excited that we are able to, by God's provision and God's grace, and under what we firmly believe is God's guidance and God's wisdom, build a building as a base of ministry on the West End. We have a history of buildings. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to share with you a little bit here. I, w- I am working on a series of posts, or a series of blogs, looking back at the history of Pendleton Street Baptist Church, and I've been looking at old newspaper articles and old uh, Baptist Courier articles and other print stuff through the years. And uh, we have a history as a congregation. Now, we've been around a long time. We've been around 130-plus years. But we have a history of, uh, of, of this will be our, if you count every space and building design for this, this will be our sixth worship center in the life of our church. And we're on our third name, moving to our fourth, which is actually our second. I know that's confusing. We'll... We'll clarify that as we as we get a little bit further in this. But it's always an exciting time. It's always an exciting time to see how God moves and works and the transitions. It's just just good days. But I want to make sure, I've been studying uh, a good bit. I want to make sure that we are firmly established and firmly focused on the reason that we exist as a church, on the reason that we would build any building, on the reason that we would equip any people, on the reason that we exist, that God started us and planted us and has kept us here. And so I want us to begin by simply reading the first temple that was built of brick and, well, stone, quarried stone and gold and silver, the first edifice that was not the tabernacle. And the dedication in Second Chronicles chapter 6. And we're going to read verses 12 through 21. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verses 12 through 21. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands. Now Solomon had made a bronze platform that was five cubits long and five cubits wide, three cubits high. And he had set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand. You have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be conformed, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, 
the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen from heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, indeed, there was no one like you. You alone are worthy of our praise and our adoration. You're the reason that we are gathered in this place to set our minds and our hearts and our attention upon you and your word. We pray that you will indeed fill us with your spirit, that you will allow your Holy Spirit to illumine truth to our minds and our hearts, that your presence will be here, not simply in some theoretical way, but in a theological way, in the way of reality. You abide in the hearts and lives of your people. Help us to keep the right priorities. Help us to take the right steps. Help us to walk in obedience. Continually examine the motivations and the hungers of our heart. Continually help us to be motivated by your glory. That we will be people who, like Moses coming down from Sinai, reflect your glory in our countenance and reflect your glory in our life. Reflect reflect your glory through our behaviors, how we interact with one another by loving one another, how we interact with the world around us. Father, just, just consume us. Consume us with your fire, with your passion, with your conviction, with your grace, with your forgiveness. Fill us and be glorified in us today. It is in your name I pray. Amen. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the Old Testament history of what has taken place, but David has finally been appointed king of the southern kingdom and king of the northern kingdom, and he has made his palace in Jerusalem under the guidance of God Almighty who set aside this city for himself. And David wanted to build a temple, but God said, no, you're a man of war. You're a man of the sword. And so your son can build the temple, not you. And when Solomon became king, this promise is fulfilled. And all of a sudden, they entered into a building program. And what a building program. I don't know if you uh, have been in this passage recently. I know we read it at the beginning of last year, in about March of last year. And it's a great passage that reveals that this was an amazing day, an amazing experience. Seven years under construction. Solomon had called to the neighboring kingdom of Tyre to the north, and Hiram was the king, and he had asked for skilled craftsmen, and he placed his order and negotiated for cedar and cypress and other timbers from Lebanon. They had established a workforce of 70,000 who were just labor, and 80,000 who were couriers bringing stones for this temple. He had over 3,600 men as overseers to guide the people in work, supervisors on the job. They spared no expense. They took a lot of offerings. They spared no expense. The doors and the doors to the nave were overlaid in gold. They had unique furnishings that were individually crafted and designed. It was an amazing building that was built. It was one of the wonders of the world of its age. And its purpose was to show forth the glory of God and to represent the presence of God with His people. And can I tell you that that's the, part, that's the point of all of this? God dwelling with His people. Will God dwell upon the earth is what Solomon asked in Second Chronicles chapter 6. Verse 18, I'm building a temple. Will God dwell upon the earth? And Solomon knew, even in his letter to Hiram in chapter 2, when he's ordering all these materials, or chapter 1 early, as he, as he sent this out, he said, our God cannot be contained in any house. 
But the question is, will God dwell upon the earth? And now they're celebrating the completion of the temple. Before the temple, there was the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the tent by God designed that as the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, they would carry with them from place to place. And the priests would serve, and God would meet with his people. Exodus 33.11 says Moses would send at the doorway to the tent of meeting, and there he would meet with God and speak to him as a man speaks with his friend. Now it's time to celebrate just a chapter back in chapter 5, you see the musicians and the singers are here and they're prepared. And they're united in their expression of thanksgiving for God. God is good, they sing. And His steadfast love endures forever. And when they gather in this place and when they prayed and when the Ark of the Covenant is actually brought in, and they have this worship service and this praise of thanksgiving, the Bible gives us an amazing account of what happens. It says that the the glory of God, the presence, a tangible sense of the presence of God, filled the space, filled the room, filled the temple to the extent that the priests were not able to, to minister. It manifested itself as a cloud, as a bright cloud, the presence and the glory of God. That brings to my mind a song that we used to sing. As a matter of fact, Phoebe mentioned it the other day when we were preparing for Bob's funeral. Lanny Wolf was a is a music guy, and he would he would he's been around for a while. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if he's still around. He was around for a while. He wrote this song back in 1977, and he wrote this song at a church in Columbus, Mississippi, not far down the road from where I met Suzanne. And they were dedicating a building, and the Lord just laid this song on his heart. And the song's called "Surely the Presence of the Lord Is in This Place." You guys know it. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. I can feel His mighty power and His grace. I can feel the brush of angels' wings. I see glory on each face. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be at the dedication of the temple? To see the glory of the Lord settle on the place in a tangible way. So that you could sense and feel. God has promised to meet with His people. And the temple is a picture of God's intention to dwell with His people. We spoke earlier this morning in Sunday school. God dwelt in the garden with Adam and Eve in perfect fellowship. And in perfect harmony until the fall. After the fall, they were evicted. After the fall, they died spiritually. And God promised Abraham. God has been working to restore through His Son according to His plan. He promised Abraham that He would be with him. He promised uh, Isaac, and he promised Jacob. And you remember Jacob's dream of a ladder with angels ascending and descending from heaven in Genesis 28 at Bethel. And he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not until God revealed it to him. And then God was with Moses. You remember when Moses came upon the burning bush, and God promised to not leave him, to be with him, and to be his strength. And as he was leading the Israelites, and they left Egypt, they traveled through the wilderness, and God revealed his presence to them in very practical ways, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, to serve both as their guide and their guard, and a testimony to them and to the world around them that God's here. God's here in power. God's here in might. And now they finally got to the place where they, they have Jerusalem. And Solomon has built a temple. What a building. What a project. What a celebration. We look at Solomon. I hope you can picture Solomon. He's built this five cubits by five cubits by three cubits high. He's gathered all the children of Israel together. And he stands before them with his arm raised to heaven. And he's not 
bragging on the job they've done. He's not bragging on his wisdom. He's not bragging on his might in majesty. But this says he falls to his knees with his arms still outstretched before the assembly, praising God, hands still raised to heaven, kneeling in the assembly of Israel. We see Solomon understands that even in the dedication of this building, this glorious building, there's only one thing that makes it a glorious building, and that is the presence of God. It is the presence of God that brings the glory of God. It is what God does through His presence and His power and His might. It is what God does when His people are yielded and obedient and dependent that glorifies God. What is the mission statement that we have written, that God has written for us, I would argue, for this congregation, Pendleton Street Baptist Church, soon to be West End Baptist Church? We exist to glorify God by making mature disciples of all nations, starting in the West End. But I want us to start right there. We exist to glorify God. Is that true? Should it be true? Must it be true? The first point on your outline, the first point that is made through this glorious building is not, in, not because of their efforts, not because of what they had done, but because... God determined and desired to make His presence known. God's presence brings God's glory. And His glory is made manifest. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The building was important. The celebration was deserved. And at the foundation of this, this is what they did. They did like we do. They remember that it is about God and His presence with the people. Without the presence of God, a building is just a building. Amen. You with me there? Say that. I want you to get that. Without the presence of God, a building is just a building. You can travel across Europe and see empty cathedral after empty cathedral. Unless we get too arrogant in our North American pride, you can go town to town, particularly in the South, and see empty church building or church building in disarray that was built at one time to, to be used by the people of God for God's glory, but has since become neglected or abandoned. A building without the presence of God is just a building. Several years ago, we went to Peru. Some of you guys may remember that trip. We flew into Lima and then went down to Iquitos, and we got on these boats, and we went down the Amazon. One of the missionaries there said, when you come down here, don't talk about buildings with these people because the focus a status symbol is a house with walls and a roof, and a status symbol for a, church, uh, a, a village is to have an actual wooden structure we came to one of those and they said when we got to the village they said would you like to see our church and we said yes and we went and it was a small wooden building that was locked and it had benches lined up in rows no backs just benches and it had a little pulpit at the front and it had a little raised platform behind that and we could look in the windows and see it and the guy who showed it to us said we're really proud of our church when do y'all meet here? Oh, we haven't met here in years. We don't have anyone to preach to us or anyone to teach to us. But we did have some people come and build us a building. And we're proud of our church. Now, to us, that just seems ludicrous. It just seems funny. But I want to tell you that we have to guard our heart against the same thing. We have to make sure that we recognize... It is God's presence that brings God's power. It brings conviction of sin and righteousness. It is God's presence that shows forth His might. 
At the dedication of the temple, we see God do something wonderful. He came down. He came down uh, tangibly and made His presence known. In chapter 5, the ark is brought into the Holy of Holies. The leaders consecrated themselves. They made sure they were clean before God. The singers and the musicians were prepared, and the trumpets gathered, and then they blew and they joined together in praise to the Lord. And they said, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God gave, God gave them a glimpse of His glory. It's His presence that matter. Now, I don't know about you, but I would think Solomon would, might be saying, Boy, wow, it just doesn't get any better than this. A desire my father had, a desire I had, permission God had in this celebration, it just doesn't get any better than this. But that's not what Solomon says. He puts things in its perspective, in his wisdom, in his yieldedness, and the power and the presence of God. He puts things in perspective. He returns to a thought he had earlier, and he's asked the question in verse 18, Will God indeed dwell with men upon the earth? In his letter to Hiram, negotiating for materials, he said, The house that I am to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a house, since heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offering before him? And again, in this prayer of dedication, he says, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built in this moment when he could have focused upon his gifts and his labors and his wisdom and his skill, when he could have focused upon his strategies and putting them into place, when he could have focused on the building itself, the quarried stones and the gold-clad doors, when he could have celebrated the tens of thousands of laborers and the generosity of his people, Solomon does something that you and I must be careful to do. He keeps his focus on God. He keeps his focus on God's glory and God's Word. He keeps his focus on God's might and God's majesty and the truth that God is uncontainable. Sounds just like the Apostle Paul. You guys remember in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul was traveling? And he came to Athens where all the philosophers were. And he went to the Areopagus and he began to preach and teach to them. In Acts chapter 17, 24, in his description to them of our God, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. God is impossible to contain. Why? Because God's plan was always a person and not a place. And if you're following along on the outline, that's the second thing I want you to write down. God's plan has always been a person and not a place. This is a theme that is throughout Scripture. It is what W.A. Criswell calls the scarlet thread that runs through the Scriptures. We see it in one place. In John chapter 4, you remember the well at Sychar where the woman, Jesus meets the woman at the well. She turns the conversation, as the conversation progresses, to a place. You say, your people say we should worship in Jerusalem. Our people, we say we should worship on Mount Gerizim. Which place is right? And Jesus responds and says, well, and I'm going to paraphrase radically, but here's what he's telling her. It's not about a place. It's about a person. There's a Messiah who will come, who will make us known to God, and then we'll be able to worship God in spirit and in truth. His point is, it's about a person, not a place. The only way to worship the Father is through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. It's important, I think, for us, because people do get tied up on places about 
holy places. It seems to be a lot of emphasis for this, but we need to remember that it is the presence of God that makes a place holy. God's plan was always about a person and not a place. Will Solomon, when Solomon said, will God indeed dwell upon the earth? There's an answer. Yes. Absolutely. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. God becoming flesh and dwelling upon the earth. The Gospel of John, the prologue to the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him that were made. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Go down to verse 14. And you see, and this word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we be, have seen his glory. We beheld his glory, the glories of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. In the Old Testament, the temple represented the presence of God with his people, but the temple was destroyed. It was raised, and they began to try to build another temple. But God's plan was never simply a place. God's plan was his presence on the earth in the Incarnation. And, I, and, and, of course, you know this. This is so significant, so important for us to recognize that God tabernacled with us. That's what the prologue to the Gospel of John is about. What, why did God, John write his Gospel? Remember in John chapter 20, he tells us, he wrote it, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he kicks this prologue off by saying, this Jesus that I'm talking about, this is God. In the beginning was the Word. Now, where else do you have a verse that starts in the beginning? Genesis chapter 1. He's reflecting that. And his Jewish population would have got this. In the beginning was the Word. How did God create in the beginning? In the beginning God created. How did He do it? He did it with the Word. Jesus is the agent of creation. He is identifying this person, Jesus, unequivocally. In the Jewish mind, they would have got it immediately. We need to grasp and understand that this is God in human flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This light shone in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. But there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was not this light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light. This is John the Baptist that he's talking about. And when you get to verse 14, he uses this same word, abides, or dwells, that we talked about earlier, the tabernacle, the tent, when it said, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, that word is tent. It means a visible, intimate, close presence. God's plan has always been a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Important truth that we grasp and that we understand, because the first question is, will God dwell upon the earth among His people indeed? What is the answer? The answer is yes, God did dwell upon the earth. In 33 years as an incarnate man, incarnate man, a God who put on flesh, fully God and fully man, he walked the earth. He walked the shores of Galilee. He went to Jerusalem. There is nothing so amazing and so fantastic as the incarnation. God with us, Emmanuel. Did Jesus identify himself as, the, as such? Of course he did. Remember, there was one greater than Solomon. You remember when he was talking about the temple? And he said, if you tear this temple down, in three days I'll build it right back up. What's he identifying himself? The presence of God with his people, his body, him as God's representation, the image of the invisible God. 
here on the earth. He came and he lived perfectly. He willingly died on the cross, receiving the wrath of God for sin. He comes as the way, the truth, and the life. And so we've got the God of the Old Testament making his presence known upon the earth and his glory shown. We've got the God of the Gospels, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, making his presence known. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of trace and truth. So, will God come and dwell among his people? Yes. Did God come and dwell among his people? Yes. Here's the question. Does God come and dwell among his people today? Does he? Not in a temple made by hands. Not in a building, not in a place. But through the person of God who came into the hearts and lives of people that he saves and that he redeems. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing to the believers at the church of Ephesus. And he's talking about how that they were far off at one time, not being part of the Jewish nation, the people who are identified nationally as the people of God. And he says now, there was a time when you were strangers and aliens, but you're no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now get this, you're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone or being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in him, in Christ, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. First Corinthians chapter 3 says, You have become a temple of the Holy Spirit, both individually and corporately as a church, but now brought near. We read this morning, our scripture reading was the 84th Psalm. How precious is your dwelling place? How lovely is your dwelling place, O God Almighty? So here's the question. Where does God dwell on earth today? Where is the glory of God manifest on earth today? You and me. Those who have been redeemed, those who have been saved, we are the temple of God. We are the home of God. We are the dwelling place of God. And here's the application point for the message. I know this is a lot of history, but this is so important for us. Listen. God's people reflect the glory of God. Our countenance is to reflect the glory. Sometime when you get a chance, write this down. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Go through that chapter, particularly the end of that chapter, and look at the glory of God in and through His people. It is an exciting passage, and this is a, a great truth. We have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. We all have the same ca- calling. Isaiah, he says that we were created for His glory over 50 times. In the Bible, we have the truth stated and restated that we exist for the glory of God. This is why we're here. Isaiah 43, 7 instructs, uh, states that we're created for His glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that we're to do everything that we do. Eat, drink, whatever for the glory of God. It should be our motivation in decision making, our motivation in living. But here's the question, how do you give glory to the King of glory? And you don't generate it, you don't create it, you reflect the God who is glorious. Does that make sense? 
The sun creates light. The moon reflects light. We are too, as God creates His light and His presence and His character and His holiness as we spend time in His presence, we reflect that to others. God reveals His glory. We can observe His glory. To glorify Him is not to bestow glory upon God or to add to His glory, but to recognize and acknowledge His glory. The word glory is kabod in the Old Testament word. Kabod, K-A-B-O-D. By the way, the word for to go away or to run out is ik, ik, ik. When you put those together, you get Ichabod or Ichabod, Ichabod. All right? And so that's why when the ark was taken under Eli's tenure as the high priest, one of his grandsons was named Ichabod because the glory has departed. The glory of the Lord is gone. That's the worst thing that can be said about a life. It's the worst thing that can be said about a church. The glory has departed. Conversely, what is the best thing that can be said? What is the highest compliment, the highest praise to God? It is that a person or a church is filled with the glory of God. Glory means weighty, heavy, grave, shining majesty that accompanies God's presence. The verb to glorify means to give weight to or to honor. To glorify God is to recognize God for who He is and to respond appropriately. We see God's glory in the temple. We see God's glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see God's glory in you. We see God's glory in me. Ephesians 2 has nothing to do with our achievements. It has nothing to do with our education. It has nothing to do with our worth and our value. It has nothing to do with our class, our race, or our economics, or our income. It has nothing to do with how well we process and whether we're a right-brained person or a left-brained person, whether we're a male or female, whether we're young or old. Ephesians chapter 2 has to do with a God who is not willing that any should perish, but wants all to know Him. He wants His dwelling place to be with you and your dwelling place to be with Him. And in that plan in the Old Testament, He foretold it through the temple. He realized it in the incarnation of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He offers that forgiveness, that relationship, that life to, to us, to people who don't know Him, but need to know Him. Who can come to Him in repentance and faith, recognizing that they have been separated from God and seeing His glory are drawn to Him and surrender their life to Him. The glory of God is reflected in us. How is it reflected in us? It's reflected in us as we come to Him in repentance and faith. And He washes us and He cleanses us and He makes us into something new. It's reflected in us as, as we walk after the Spirit, living lives dependent upon Him. It's reflected in us as we do good works. Matthew 5.16 says we should do good works that glorify God. People will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Where does it end? It ends in Revelation 21 when it's not about God coming to us, but about God taking us home. And Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth, first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Listen. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. And He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself shall be with them as their God. And He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be 
mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Until then, folks, we have the honor, the privilege, the calling, the duty, the responsibility to be God's temple filled with the Spirit of God reflecting His glory to the world around us. Now, I'm excited about the coming days. I'm excited about what God has in store for us as a church. Not only are we going to be going back to the West End physically, we're revisiting our bylaws. Doesn't that excite you? Doesn't that sound exciting? What, what are bylaws, by the way? They are the rules by which decisions are made and primary functions are carried out in the church. In 2016, this congregation, we made the decision that we would keep pretty much leadership in place as it was and not rotate deacons, not rotate the leadership team during the time of transition. Folks, that was 2016. Now, there are some benefits to that. There was some real strength as we were making decisions and going from one place to another. But there are some handicaps to that as well. And so what we are doing over the next several weeks and the next several months is we are studying the Scriptures and searching them. We're looking at the old bylaws. We are looking at our church covenant, and we're saying, all right, what does it mean for us as a congregation to make decisions that glorify God and to organize ourselves and to equip ourselves so that every person has a part filled by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God to give glory to God through our service and through our obedience together as the body of Christ. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Here's what I want us to know. God dwells us and indwells us in order to work through us that we might be salt, that we might be light, that we might reflect His glory to one another and to the community that God calls us to and places to. So there's a lot that's going to be taking place over the next several months as we simply say, Father, build us into the temple, if you will, the presence, the church, the congregation that you would have us to be so that all glory goes to you on the West End so that you are magnified and so that people see you and see your glory reflected in us. Isn't that a great prayer? Isn't that a great prayer? Father, let others see Jesus in me. Father, let, let your glory be seen in me. And our motivation needs to be that God be glorified for your glory. Father, it's a simple prayer, but it's a weighty one. It's a simple truth, but it's one that resounds throughout all of Scripture. And as we go through the days ahead, as we look at transitions and steps and places to meet and decisions to be made and how to organize a church and what committees and teams and leadership and and how decisions are made, and, and all of these sorts of things. These are, these are weighty, but they're weighty only to the extent that we're in agreement with your word, that we are following in the way that you would have us to go. These are exciting days. Not because we're building a building. These are exciting days because we are, as a church, setting our face firmly toward you, asking that you fill us with your glory, that we might reflect your glory those that you place in our communities, in our paths, in our neighborhood, in our place. We love you. Be glorified in us. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand.